Hey, this is Rupa. And this is the second part of a two-part episode set in Minnesota, a place where two major issues confronting America are converging, terrorism and police violence. The week I went to the Twin Cities, protesters closed highways twice, jamming traffic for hours. That's a big deal in Minneapolis, as it would be in any city, and it seemed to split white liberals. On Twitter and in the comment sections of news stories, People who self-identified as white wrote that they were sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter cause, but they didn't understand how closing highways is productive. Wilson Ibrahim, the 27-year-old Somali-American and Black Lives Matter member in the first part of this episode, had this response when I asked her about it. Don't read the comments. Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> first and foremost. Just don't read the comments. But the fact that you're talking about it, the fact that you're bothered, the fact that you're aware of what Black Lives Matter is, that's why we're blocking the roads. The fact that our lives are daily destructed, disturbed, and you can go on and never be affected by that. That's why we make you uncomfortable because we, we've we been uncomfortable like our whole lives. And the fact that you're feeling this now makes it all worth it because there's no debating it now. And that's where I got the idea for this part of the episode. It's about feelings and the unexpected power they can have, like the feeling of fearing law enforcement. People really, really run away from police. Police was like the most scariest thing you could you could think about and the feelings that you struggle to put into words when we heard them say a concept we would just say the thing you're talking about is impunity the thing you're talking about is propaganda the thing you're talking about is racism but first feeling safe there's a defining moment that's happening here and if you're playing pokemon go you're missing it you know <laughs> i'm rupa shinoi and this is otherhood Summer in Minnesota began with bitter disappointment for people who want police reform. In June, prosecutors announced they wouldn't press charges against the officers who killed Jamar Clark, the young black man witnesses said was shot while his hands were cuffed behind his back. Things just got worse in July. An officer in the suburbs pulled Philando Castile over for a broken taillight and fatally shot him. Minnesota's governor, the liberal Democrat Mark Dayton, expressed shock that something like that could happen in Minnesota, a state known for its progressiveness. I'm heartbroken for Minnesota because would this have happened if those passengers, the driver and the passengers were white? I don't think it would have. So I'm forced to confront, and I think all of us in Minnesota are forced to confront, that this, this kind of uh, racism exists and that it's incumbent upon all of us to vow that we're going to do whatever we can to see that it doesn't continue to happen. Some police slammed Dayton for those comments. Protesters wanted to make sure he lived up to the sentiment. They set up a camp outside his house. Demonstrations throughout the Twin Cities grew bigger and bolder. Charmaine Chua was at one four days after Philando Castile died. I just answered a call that had been put out on Facebook and wasn't there with any particular group, but showed up with just some friends. 
she and other protesters stormed a highway ramp, evaded officers, and rushed onto I-94, the crucial road that connects the two downtowns of the Twin Cities. Organizers in a truck were shouting directions. The Black Lives Matter organizers who were on the truck and making the announcements made a call for white allies to come up to the front. And I believe the call went something like this. White allies, we're asking that you link arms and take the front lines of this blockade. You will most certainly be arrested, but we are asking that you risk yourselves and put your bodies on the line for us. And black and brown folks, we recognize that you are much more at risk from police brutality. And so they basically made a call for black and brown folks to remain in the center of the circle and that they could choose not to be arrested um, as long as they didn't want to. At that point, Charmaine had to think a bit about where she was supposed to go. She's Chinese from Singapore and has been living in the Twin Cities for seven years, working on a poli-sci PhD at the University of Minnesota. She knows there's Asian privilege, and Asians don't have to deal with a lot of the stuff Black people experience. There was certainly this sort of dilemma for me because I wanted to risk myself and I wanted to stand with, you know, the white allies on the front lines. But I also decided at the end of the day that in order for me to continue being able to be part of social movements in the U.S., I had to sort of think long term and and stay back. Part of the difficulty for me is that if I get arrested in the U.S., I would risk facing either deportation, but if not, um, at least some complications with getting hired as a non-U.S. citizen. So she watched as white supporters formed a human chain to separate her and other protesters from hundreds of cars. What happened, I think, was that there were far more white allies who were willing to risk arrest than they had probably expected. Up to three to four lines deep of white allies lined up, linked arm to arm, side by side, along the highway in the front line. And black and brown protesters end up sort of being cocooned in the middle And so it was really quite this beautiful moment because, you know, I think one of the complicated conversations with Black Lives Matter has been around sort of what does it mean to be a white person or a non-black person involved in the protest. And in this particular instance, I, I thought it was really wonderful how it was in response to a call made by black organizers and black leaders that white people took the front lines. They made sure that they waited until that call was asked of them. Beyond the circle of white supporters that surrounded them, Charmaine saw the police in riot gear advance. At the very moment that the police sort of came, you know, within 10 to 15 feet of the protesters, someone from across, like over the highway on the bridge from which many people were watching, threw a, threw a firework down on, on the police, which went up in this sort of sudden burst of flame and you know, watching from a slight distance, I, I actually couldn't tell what the firework was. It didn't occur to me that it had come from a spectator, and I assumed that it was the police using some sort of crowd dispersal device. So you could see the white allies get sort of really afraid for a moment there as the firework went up, because it was really scary. I mean, you could see the sort of sparks come out and sort of almost rain down on the crowd. Some people, you know, in fear, naturally sort of recoiled. At that moment, one of the Black Lives Matter organizers said, hold together, you know, hold together, don't let go, don't run. White allies reformed their lines, stood firm, and police retreated for about an hour while traffic was stopped on the highway. So I think the allies actually held the highway for us for a much longer time than we had anticipated. 
When police finally did advance, the protest devolved into what one prosecutor later called a riot. Instigators, many of whom were never identified, were blamed for throwing bottles and bricks. Police arrested more than 100 people, many of them white. I asked Jermaine, who's been participating in protests for years, if she'd ever seen organizers talk so intentionally about race, how it works, and how they were using it in the middle of a protest. You know, actually, no. I was thinking about this the other day, and I've, you know, I've been involved in protests in New York, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Los Angeles, but I had never before, I think, heard organizers sort of so explicitly talk about positionality in the thick of a, a moment of protest. And I thought it was a real testament to how well organized the Black Lives Matter coalition here really was. And that approach of acknowledging that some people face harsher consequences than others, that made Charmaine feel way more safe. I felt like I couldn't risk arrest and so was in the middle of the protest and felt really safe in a way and really grateful that I was able to both participate in the protest and show my solidarity, but that, you know, the protest structure could recognize that I was at risk in a different way. I mean, I think that I would have left the highway much earlier if there hadn't been that call that was made and if if there hadn't been a clear sort of message from the organizers about who risked protest and who didn't. Because then sometimes, you know, in the, in the sort of height of protest, it can be pretty chaotic and you don't always know what the level of risk you're putting yourself in really is. But it helps that they, they announced that and made it clear sort of where you could stand, where you were safe and where you weren't. There's risk in protesting, but there's also risk in not standing up to injustice. Jamal Osman knows that because he lived it in Somalia. People really, really run away from police. Police was like the most scariest thing you could, you could think about. Back then, Jamal learned a hard lesson. When there are people in a country who fear police and nothing happens to address that fear, it means that law enforcement has gained too much power and the country itself is sliding out of control. His family was forced to flee to refugee camps in Kenya and then to the Twin Cities when Jamal was 14. He remembers sitting in an orientation session soon after. The person teaching the class told them the police were there to help when you're in danger. The instructor was like, don't run away from the police. Call the police. You run to the police. And we had so many questions about it. That's the police. You know what's going on. In the years since then, police have stopped Jamal often for seemingly flimsy reasons. But he chose to believe in America because he was able to build something from nothing here. A healthy family, a nice home, and a good job at a social services agency. He's happy. When he smiles, the dimples show in his cheeks. I have my friends here. I love outdoors. I love the lakes. I love the hike, canoeing, just the nature part. Growing up, I grew up in, in a climate, very hot climate, desert, not a lot of trees. Here I kind of appreciate how beautiful Minnesota is. But if Minnesota allows police violence to continue unchecked, Jamal says the state will be heading down a path he thought he left behind. In a way, there was a time Somalia was just one of the beautiful countries in the world, and it started like this. If the police get away with this, overusing their power, where does that lead to? Imagine all the other countries that have dictatorship. How do you think they get there? They get there by having too much power on people and people just ignoring it. And we shouldn't let our society get to that level. 
Donald Trump's rhetoric about keeping Muslims out of the country, though, that makes Jamal think society is still moving in the wrong direction. It worries him that even white people who are close to him support Trump. One friend in particular, a guy Jamal met while working at a car dealership in 2003, is a fervent Trump supporter. Jamal's asked that friend, does he agree with Trump, that people like Jamal can be dangerous and maybe shouldn't be allowed in the country? He's like, no, you're different. You're different. You're different. You're different from other Muslims. Yeah, that's what he's saying. I think he's just into a lot of propaganda. Uh, what do you see on TV? What do you see on Facebook or whatever on the Internet? People are selling him fear. I, mean, I don't think media saying anything positive of people marching. Similar way of uh, civil rights movement. You see it as, oh, level your thugs. Horrible comments you see on the Internet every day. You don't, I would suggest you not to read the comments some people post on people that march. Now Jamal can't hold back old fears. Fears that I've heard many refugees and immigrants express, even my own mom. They're scared that this country is becoming more like the places they were grateful to leave behind. If we don't stand up, if we don't unite, then anything can happen. Chaos, this is the time the real leader should stop. We should have someone like MLK or someone like Gandhi. Jamal doesn't feel like he can join the protests. He worries about getting arrested and not being able to get a job and support his family. So he watches and reads the news compulsively. He has to turn off the TV, though, when his nine-year-old daughter, Jana, comes in the room. She always has questions, he says, like, why do people hate Muslims? And Jamal doesn't want to have that conversation. Oof. I don't know. I don't know how I would answer some of the questions he would have. I, I don't want her to be exposed what's happening on TV. I don't know, for me, it's, I have a fear about talking to her about anything. Jamal's just beginning to confront this problem because he's got three girls and Jana's the oldest. He shows me a video of her. This is recent, this was Eid. Oh. Uh, Let me see here. Oh, she's tall. Yeah, she's very tall. Stand up. This is her. You like any repulse, Jenna? Yeah. What do you say? Thank you. All right. Ready for a boat ride? We went to a boat ride. Jamal says his daughter is very innocent. When he was her age, he had lots of responsibilities, like herding goats. Life wasn't just watch TV, you know, play toys. We used to make our own toys, run around with barefooted, jumping tires, and playing different games, way different games than here. I'm not going to down talk my daughter, but I think kids over there, they really take care of their family when they're nine years old. They have huge responsibility. Over here, you got to tie their shoes. (laughs) I'm just saying, (laughs) I love my daughter, but she's just spoiled, very spoiled young daughter. (laughs) And really, that's the way Jamal likes it. He would prefer his daughter stay spoiled and innocent. He doesn't want her to know about the fear and hate she'll have to confront in her own way someday. I think I'll just close her ears and eyes and say, hey, you know, let's go to the mall. Let's have fun. Let's just kind of ignore that topic. But eventually she will grow up and find out her own. But I don't know. As a parent, my choice, I, I, I don't know if I can really do that and face that. 
many immigrant parents can't or don't like to talk to their kids about race in America. My parents didn't, but you still feel that something's going on. It's like walking around in the dark. Awali Osman recognized this problem. You might remember him from the first part of this episode. He's a friend of Filson's and a bit younger at 23 years old. In 2015, Awali helped create a Somali-only debate club at Augsburg College in Minneapolis. And if you're not familiar with debate, it's basically arguing fast and well about complex things in stressful short spurts. The Somali Debate Initiative, as it came to be called, is a place where kids can learn to articulate their feelings and make an argument in a safe environment. Debate has provided, the Somali Debate Initiative has provided a platform for our students to be able to workshop their identity and work through, you know, these particularly challenging mm-hmm. feelings, right, that comes from experiencing all these different kinds of traumas. So they have something to do with right, the emotions. Right, in a constru- and channel that energy in a constructive way. Awali's passionate about how debate can help other Somali-American kids learn to argue their point of view in what Awali calls our westernized decision-making process. That's actually like a really nice way of saying white supremacy. (laughs) The young Somali debaters learned how to explain their experiences in sophisticated terms, describing, for example, how the aftershocks of colonialism displaced their families. An African-American school administrator named Genesia Williams was watching them and thinking, I wish that we would have had a resource like this when I was younger. If she had, Genesia says she might have realized something sooner, that her own family members are refugees of a sort. They fled violence in Chicago when she was a child for the promise of safety and better opportunities in Minnesota. It made her think of her own life in a new way. That's given me language to understand my experience of coming from one world, Chicago, and coming to this world, Minnesota. Genesia has big eyes, a warm personality, long crochet-style Senegalese dreads, and, as she calls it, a passionate respect for kids. She designed a debate spinoff called the Advocacy Unit. It's essentially a class that helps high schoolers understand what they're feeling, put it into words, and construct an argument for what they want to happen. We just asked them the question was, what's happening in the world? What do you see? How do you feel about it? And, like, when we heard them say a concept, we would just say, the thing you're talking about is impunity. The thing you're talking about is propaganda. The thing you're talking about is racism. The thing you're talking about is the need for prison reform. Mm-hmm. What it does is it, it doesn't give them more access to the concept, right, because they already know it. What it does is it gives them the ability to speak about it when they're in what we might consider to be mixed company. The pilot class began the week after Philando Castile died. Genesia asked a friend to help, a 21-year-old undergraduate named Dua Soleil, whose name I am sadly mispronouncing, but saying to the best of my ability with her approval. Dua is a Sudanese refugee who came to the States when she was five. She has curly hair, a small frame, and a fierce spirit. I asked her for an example of how the class works. Right, okay. So an example would be... During class, one student in particular, he wasn't saying it in this way, okay. but he, he was talking about the, the concept of symbolic interactionalism. The teenager described how gang members wore different colors, and those colors signified their status within their gang. Along the same lines, he talked about how gang members sometimes make their pants really baggy to show that they're carrying a gun. 
I just let him talk. And then I was like, what you're saying is a concept that I'm learning called symbolic interactionalism. You're talking about social markers that push people on different, like, hierarchical boundaries of whatever it is. And how did he respond to that? He started writing notes. And so I was writing notes as he was talking because I was like, oh, snap, okay. This is, this is a good way to conceptualize it within gang culture. And he was like, oh, snap, this is the word that describes what I'm saying. The teenagers got the hang of it quickly. Dua says now they're saying things that shock her because they're so perceptive. This week they said freedom is an illusion. I did not say this. A student did. I was like, what? That student was talking about Philando Castile and how he had done everything right but still died. Dua had been thinking about that too, but she hadn't put it into words. This illusion of freedom, they come here because they think that they can find financial support, not because they want to, because they're forced to, and my family was forced to, and Genesea's family was forced to, and so was Philando Castile's family. But to know that you can be murdered after complying with every single systemic rule and regulation that is being pushed onto you by a society that hates you already, it's absolutely astounding. Like, and that's terrifying because there's no place that you can escape to. Even the place that like the entire world sees as one of the most liberated nations, you can't escape inhumanity. I don't even know how to talk about it without like being struck. Like I'm itching my neck right now because I don't know how to like, it's literally traumatic like talking about this shit because it's, sorry I swore, but. That's, I think, what we struggled with. This is Genesee again. How do we go in front of these kids, talk to them about change, and we get in the room on the first day, and they're like, hope is an illusion. Freedom is an illusion. They said that. We didn't say that. We didn't lead them. We just asked them what they thought. And so then it becomes our responsibility to talk to them about hope. Because that's what we have to do for ourselves. We have to give ourselves the pep talk so that we can continue and do the things that we're supposed to do in this world. And so we talked about it and we asked them, is there hope? Does it exist? First, hope is also an illusion. (laughs) That was the response. I don't disagree with that. So I, I asked, we asked, is the world bleak? If it's bleak, is there anything we can do? And one student said, any action that we take could never be hopeless. And I asked, so does that mean that you believe? I said, what I'm hearing you say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that if any action we take could never be hopeless, we can create hope. Is that what I heard you say? And the student said yes. So. I'm gonna have to rely on the strength and the faith of the student and say, yes. I couldn't have ended that better than Genesea. So that's it for this week. Thanks to everyone in Minnesota for help with this episode. I'll leave you with the first call to the Otherhood Hotline. I promise I do not know this guy, but he made my week. If you want to leave your own message and hear it on the podcast, that number is 802-520-OH-POD. One more time, that's 802-520-OH-POD. You can also contact me on the Otherhood Facebook page and I'm on Twitter at Rupa Shinoy. Please, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you feel like leaving a review, 
that would be so great. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Hi, this is Jason from Brooklyn. I really like the story that you had about the folks in Minnesota and the Somali folks, like, you know, as far as African immigrants, you know, like starting to deal with the issues of Black Lives Matter. It kind of touched a nerve with me because it's something that I've experienced personally. You know, I'm a black man from the South originally, and I moved to New York. And it was the first time I started interacting with people who were throughout the diaspora who didn't have the same history as black Americans. And I noticed there's a lot of tension between our communities, especially among people who are first generation or people who like just arrived. And usually by second or third generation, when the kids come up in the in the society that they're, you know, the society that's kind of like, you know, white supremacy structure, those kids then learn that, oh, I'm black, I'm not just Somali, or I'm not just Ghanaian. But usually the first generation folks, there's a lot of tension about that. So your story kind of touched on that. Great job. Peace.